Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. And if you open your Bible almost to the middle, you'll get to the book of Psalms, uh, the biggest book of the Bible. You go two books to the right, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And we're going to be in chapter 5, which is the big number, and we're just going to be in verses 1 to 7 this morning. Because we are trying to figure out how we can live uh, for Jesus in a confusing world. We're searching this book to gain some sort of wisdom on how to follow God in the middle of a world that is following themselves and wanting glory for themselves. And this morning is going to be massively important for us to understand. Because the more we give ourselves to the world and are shaped and molded by the world, is the more we begin to bring that into our worship of God. So 13 years ago, uh, I was working with a campus ministry, and every year at the end of the year, they did a conference between Christmas and New Year's. It was kind of the main uh, conference throughout the year, and this was a pretty impactful conference. They had about 15 to 1,600 students at this conference. They would bring in all of the heavy hitters, if you will, in the preaching world. And on the last night, everything kind of culminates to that last night where they have a prominent speaker preaching. I mean, he did a wonderful job preaching, unpacking God's word. And after that, they brought up the band, which if I remember was 10th Avenue North. And, and they brought up the band and just began to sing and, and worship. And, and in the middle of that, the lights are dim People have enjoyed a, a, a night of preaching, a night of singing. And one of the staff members goes on stage and in that moment begins to plead with college students to give a year of their life to ministry. As they begin to plead, hey, when you graduate, would, would you give a year of your life to Christian ministry? They begin to make this plea and they begin to say, hey, there's a card under your chair, fill that out. And in a moment, we're going to have you come to the front and give us this card as a dedication to the Lord that you're going to commit a year of your life to following Jesus Christ in ministry. And in that moment, hundreds students came to the front and said, we want to give a year of our life to serving the Lord. That's wonderful, isn't it? Praise the Lord, right? I remember the night ending, so much excitement in the air. Students go back and they pack up their rooms and they go back to their campuses and the semester starts and studies start and they get back into the routine of life. And guess what happens? That promise that they gave to God in a moment that was filled with emotion came crashing down. You see, when all the excitement, when all the emotion, when the moment that was conjured up Ended, guess what they said? Well, I didn't really mean that. They broke their promise to the Lord. Because we had the audacity to think that in that moment we could create an environment 
that would somehow honor the Lord when the environment was actually about our own statistics and what we wanted in the moment. It wasn't actually worship of God. It was the kind of worship so we could write home and say, look at what God did through us. And I wonder how many times we come to worship and it's not about God. It's actually about us. And this morning, the author of Ecclesiastes is going to hammer that home because it's so easy to live in a world that is telling you that life is all about you, to take that into the worship environment of the Lord and to begin to say, this is about what I get and not about what God gets. And the author wants to pause and say, no, right wisdom comes by worshiping God rightly. And the point he's going to hammer home for us this morning is just simply this, that if we're going to worship rightly, right worship requires, this is not an add-on, this is not a bonus, this isn't like, hey, if this happens, it's wonderful. No, it requires reverent fear of God, not fear of man. If I'm, if I'm honest, the American church has gotten this wrong. If I'm honest, I've got this wrong. There's so many times it's more about the outcome than about a heart of loving Jesus Christ. And the author's going to reorient ourselves to the truth of honoring the Lord. And so with that, would you go ahead and stand with me as we read verses 1 to 7. We stand in honor of the holy God speaking to us in this moment. Starting in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven. And you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay repaying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. The author here lands on an important concept that I think is so readily missed for us. And it's this idea of fear of God. This idea that, that if you go to the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon or the actual Grand Canyon and you get to the edge, there's this beauty that you see and the splendor of the mountains and the trees. And not in Arizona, but Pennsylvania, the trees. 
And yet you know, if you're like me, who's klutzy, that one slip, one false move, and you're dead. It's amazing. And it can kill you. All in one. And there's this reality that the God that we serve is amazing. And yet, has the ability to strike us out. And we often forget that. It's this concept of the fact that we serve a holy God. We often have heard the term holy used in, in this idea of being separate from sin. And, and that's true. To be holy is to be separate from sin. But it's so much better than that. Some of us have may, may have heard the term that to be holy is not just separate from sin, but separated. Yes, that's true. But as one author puts it, the term holy actually means that we are entirely devoted to God. That means every area of our life is entirely devoted to God. It's more than just being without sin. It's actually saying everything in me is about God. And yet we've lost that idea of holiness. And because we've lost that idea of holiness, we, we can often come in and, and, and we can come to the Lord in prayer. We can come to the Lord in our Bible reading. We can come to the Lord as we gather as a church and, and we can begin to, to think it's, it's either about me or we can begin to think that it doesn't really matter. But if we serve a holy God who is fully apart from sin, all about his glory, then it does matter. And this morning, the author is going to show us the way in which we should actually approach worship of God. There are plenty of ways that the Bible shows us, but this passage shows us four ways that we should actually approach the worship of God, and then the one way and power that we can actually approach worship in that way. So let's look at these four ways that we are called and actually commanded. These are not suggestions. These are commands that we are to approach God in worship. And the first way that he shows us that we should approach God in worship is that we need to close our mouth and open our ears. We need to close our mouth and open our ears. We are Americans. We like to talk. We like to give our opinion. If you go around the world, there's an, there's an aura that we have that everybody believes about Americans that we think that we know what's right and nobody else knows anything. That, we, that our opinions matter and to somehow suppress our view or to suppress our opinion is to feel oppressed. Like, who are you to tell me not to think that way? Or who are you to tell me that I can't speak? And yet the reality is, if we serve a God that created all things, the question is, who are we? What right do we have to tell him how it should be done? And we see that here in our passage. Look at verse 1. It starts simply with a command. And the command is that we need to guard our steps as we go to the house of God. Now, we have to understand a few, few things to, to really grasp what the author is getting at here. 
when he refers to the house of God, he refers to either the tabernacle, which was in the first part of the Old Testament, or now the temple. Those were the places where people would go and they would worship God. It was the place where they would sing to God, they would hear God's word, and they would make sacrifices in order to be right with God again. And did you see how he declared they should think about entering into the house of God? They're supposed to guard their steps. Not come rationally. We have to understand a little bit of a misnomer here because so often we immediately read that and we say, oh, that means the church, the building. The moment you walk into the building, then we've got to guard our steps. But if you realize what the temple actually was, it was the very presence of God on the earth. And as it was the presence of God on the earth, that was the place that they would worship him. And yet when the Babylonians come in in 587 BC, they destroy that temple. And from there on, we wonder, where is the presence of God? They even rebuild the temple. And those who remembered the former temple cry. Do you know why? Because the presence of God never returned. It's actually not until John chapter 1, verse 14, where John uh, writes in just a beautiful way that the word of God, which is Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's the first time in hundreds of years that the presence of God is now among us. And Jesus says that when I leave, I am going to leave the Holy Spirit of God with you. To the point that now, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you realize that the presence of God lives inside of us if we believe in Jesus. And the presence of God is on display when those who believe come together. So it's not the building It's the gathering of the saints of God to worship God. And so when we take that and we begin to think about what verse 1 is saying, and the author is saying, guard your steps. He's saying, don't be flippant when you come to worship with the saints of God. Don't think that you can come in however you desire to worship the Lord, that we should actually be thoughtful in our preparation. You know that the church is the only place in all of society that character is the number one quality for service. You realize that, right? Find find a basketball player who's cheating on his wife. Does he get fired? Does he get fined? Find a president that cheats on his wife. Does he get fired? No. Find a pastor that cheats on his wife. And what are you wanting in that moment? Him to be fired. There's no question. Well, he's good at speaking. Doesn't matter. Why? Because there's something different about the worship of God. That when the saints gather, that we're not just gathering to do an event, but we're gathering to elevate and exalt the risen Jesus Christ. And so when we come, he calls us to guard our steps. 
And then he gives us an example of why and how. He says to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What's a sacrifice of fools? Well, if you read the prophets, you will see time after time after time, the people of God reading the law and saying, okay, I'm supposed to offer sacrifices. And so what they would do on the Sabbath is they would go in and they would offer their sacrifice to God and they'd say, check, did that, good. And then Sunday through Friday, they would live however they wanted. In fact, they would have and worship other idols. So much so that God says in Hosea 6, 6, I desire steadfast, steadfast love and knowledge of me more than burnt offerings. You're doing all the right things. You might even be doing it well. But you don't love me. How often can we come in and, and we, can do, we can do our service or we can give a couple bucks or, or we can have a jolly atmosphere. We can write down all the notes, but, but are we doing it out of a love for God? Because notice how he calls that kind of sacrifice. He calls it foolish. He says that they don't know what they're doing. And he calls them instead to draw near to listen. It's okay. It's just a little kid who hit a buzzer. So, just unplug it. So notice though, he says to listen. Why would he call us to listen? Do you ever wonder why we come in here and we listen to a 45 to 55 minute monologue? This is not a dialogue. Why? It's not because of me. It's because the Lord says that when we come, it's not about what we bring, but it's about listening to what he has for us. That's why every week I try to ground you in God's word. And if you ever hear not being grounded in God's word, or you go to another church that does not ground you in God's word, then you need to leave. You come to hear and listen to God. That is utmost when we come to worship. Why? Because Peter told us in John, John 6 when Jesus says, where are you going to go? Are you going to turn away from me like everybody else? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. <laughs> and so church, we, we've got to make sure that, that we don't come in with our amazing sacrifice as, as if we have something to offer God. But rather, we come in prepared knowing God has something to offer us. And we're ready to listen and hear from Him. So how do we guard our steps? It doesn't start at 1030 it doesn't start at 9 a.m. It doesn't start at 7 a.m. It starts at 6 p.m. on Saturday night. You guard your steps by ensuring you get good sleep so you can get up in the morning, so you can pray, 
You can ask the Lord to prepare your heart. You can be in his word. And then you can come in here expectant that the sovereign God of the universe loves you so much, he wants to speak to you in this moment. Church, he's inviting you in. He's commanding you to guard your steps, and he's inviting you in to prepare yourself for worship. Do you do that? It's not the only command he gives. The second command, he says, is that we need to carefully speak to God. When we do talk, we have to be careful. Look at verse 2. He says, be not rash with your mouth. Be careful to not speak in unedifying ways. Be careful that you don't speak to or about God in unhelpful ways. We're going to see throughout this passage that the author is getting at a vow that we might hastily give to the Lord. But I don't think it's just that narrow here. There's a, there's a way in which we can be rash with God with our words, isn't there? Maybe we say something about God that's not true. Maybe we use God's name in vain in a way that is unholy. Or maybe life is hard, and in that moment, we begin to shout at God, why are you doing this? As if, he demand, as if we can demand a response from him, and we deserve his response. And so we need to be careful that we're not coming to God in an unhelpful way. This is why the songs that we sing, we sing, uh, we try to sing songs that are rich theologically that we can sing together so that we can remind each other of the truth of God and elevate our eyes back up to who God is. But why might you be hasty with your words? Because when we're hasty, we often try to impress, right? We quickly say something as a way to either impress God or impress other people. I mean, we heard it earlier in, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 that, that Jesus says, some people, when they pray, they like to pray in such a way that others would see them and say, wow, good job. He says, don't pray like that. They're being hasty with their words. And yet he warns us to not be hasty because look at verse 2 again. He says, do not, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Now, why are you so quick to utter words? Oftentimes, we feel uncomfortable, right? When we feel uncomfortable, we tend to talk, thinking that if I just talk enough, I can get out of the uncomfortability. But Proverbs 10.19 tells us that when words are many, sin is not lacking. That the more we talk, the higher likelihood we are to sin. And the author is just trying to remind us. And notice how he reminds us. He says, God's in heaven and we're on earth. Psalm 24 tells us that God holds the entire world in his hands. 
I know some of you have been on long flights. The longest flight I've ever been on was 10 hours from Denver, Colorado to Frankfurt, Germany. It was an amazing flight. It's long, but amazing because when you start to fly over the Atlantic Ocean, you begin to see the lights of Iceland just out in the middle of nowhere. And then you start to come into Western Europe and you, in the dawn of the morning, you begin to see the beauty of Western Europe. I remember flying into Frankfurt and then getting on a train for two hours and taking that train down to Freiburg, Germany, and being able to see all of this in a matter of 24 hours. And yet that's just a sliver of the entire world. The God we serve holds all of the world in the palm of his hand. And the author's saying, he's in heaven. He holds it all together. He created it all. He sustains it all. He preserves it all. He is worthy of all worship. He's in heaven. We're on earth. May we be careful how we approach God. Because notice what he says in verse 3. He gives us a reason. He says, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. I don't know if you're like me. I, I'm a little bit of a dreamer. When we were dating, we had the ability to just kind of, when Alicia and I were dating, we had the ability to, to kind of choose wherever we were going to live and, and plant ourselves because we were not connected to to either side, feeling like we had to live in, in California or Wisconsin. And I remember multiple conversations where I said, well, what about this city? Or what about this city? Or what about this city? Or what about this city? It got to the point where she's like, it's enough. I, I, I've had my bags packed moving to multiple different locations. Like, I'm getting, like, whiplash from all of this. And yet, how often in the presence of God can we come to him and we throw around all of these ideas without actually thinking about what we're saying? And he says, may it not be with God that when we come and we talk to him, we talk to him with honor. We are careful in our speech because it's a fool who uses many words. We need to realize that God is a father, but he's also a king. And so when we come to king, to our king, we come with honor, we come with respect, and we ensure our words are guided appropriately. One way we can guide our words appropriately is just by taking God's word and praying scripture back to him. Years ago, I took the uh, whole book of Psalms and just every day walk through each Psalm praying those lines back to the Lord to guide my prayers. God is honored when we pray his word back to him. But then he shows us the third way that we should approach God in worship and that is we need to complete our promise. Complete your promise. How often have we heard or if we're honest we've actually said God, if you will, fill in the blank, I will. God, if you give me this thing, then I will serve you in this way. We do that, right? And yet he's showing us that we cannot treat God like humans, as if we can barter with him. Hey, God, if I, 
if I serve you or if, or if I obey you in this category, you'll give me all of these blessings. Instead, we need to be careful with our words and with our promises. Because notice what he says in verse 4. He says, when you vow, that's like a promise, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying for it. Now, why do you vow a vow to God? Often, it's because we're in dire straits, right? We're terrified. We don't know what to do. God, help me. If you just help me out of this situation. Or we really want something in life. Maybe it's a positive thing. We really want it. And we say, God, if you just give me this thing, then I will. He's saying, be careful. Don't be flippant with your words. Be mindful. And don't delay in pain which you vowed. We read it earlier, but Matthew 5, 37, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's no, there's no footnotes to that verse that says, here are all the legal reasons and legal outs to get you out of yes, yes, yes be yes and no be no. And what you say, you should keep. How much more so with God? Because notice what he says. If we don't, what does he say in verse 4? He has no pleasure in fools. He says it's very foolish behavior for us to stand before God and say, if you will, and have no intention in fulfilling it. We need to be careful. Because think about it. Have you ever had a person in your life that's promised you multiple things? You know, maybe they, they promise, I'll be there at 6 tonight, and it's 6.30, and they're still not there. The first time, what do you think? Man, I hope they're okay. The second time, you're like, ah, I'll give it a couple minutes. The third time, you're like, ah, we'll see. The fourth time, when they say, I'll be there at 6, you're automatically calculating in your head, Okay, they're actually going to be here at 6.30, so it's going to delay our plans by this, and it's going to do this, right? Your mind automatically goes there. And they've lost all integrity with you because they've promised and not delivered. May we not be that people with God. In fact, I wonder if the world has a bad taste of Christians in their mouth because that has been the way that we've operated with God and with the world. We've said one, we've promised one thing, and failed to fulfill that promise. In fact, Jesus tells us in Luke 14, he tells us that if we're going to follow him, we should count the cost. And he says the way in which we count the cost is like a king who goes to war. What kind of king would enter into a war without thinking about the cost of which that war will entail? He says, no, 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 no. Before the king goes into war, he sits down and he thinks about all the costs, the cost of men, the cost of goods, the, the, the time it's going to take. He thinks about all of those things. And then he says, yes, I'll enter into war. And Jesus says, that's what it means for us to follow Jesus. That we should be counting the costs, not just rushing into promises. Because notice what he warns us with in verse 5. He says, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
Church, one of the ways in which we honor God is we, we're people of our word. Because we realize that God is a God of his word. We're called to represent God. And as we represent God, he is a promise-keeping, faithful God. And he invites us in to be promise-keeping, faithful people. And the only way we can do that is if we value God above the things of the world. The only way we can actually keep our promises is if we see Jesus Christ as more important than anything else. Because why do you break your promise? Because something better comes along. But if we value Jesus, and he is at the center of our life, and he is the, the, and he is the, uh, the one that we serve. You know, when I was a kid... Uh, after church, we would go to this program at, at church called Caraway Street. Anyone heard of Caraway Street before? Nobody, right? Okay, so in our church, they would have, these, they'd have uh, the kids third grade and under go to a thing called Caraway Street. And there were all these Muppets. And all, every single week, puppets, Muppets, all, every single week, they would do this story from the Bible and point back to Jesus Christ. And I remember vividly, on, on repeat, they would grab out this flannel board... And on the flannel board, they'd have this big chair. And the question regularly was, who is on the throne of your life? Is it you? Or is it Jesus Christ? Who's on the throne of your life? Because the author says it should be God. And that's how we keep our promises is because we focus on God, not on what we get out of it. I was listening to uh, a part of a sermon this past week, and, and the pastor used a, a, an awesome analogy, and he said, you have no right to my house. You have no right to my car. I am the one that hold the keys to my house, I hold the keys to my car. I hold the title on my car. I hold the deed on my house. You have no right to those things. What makes you think that you have the right to come into my house and take my house? To come into my car and take my car? But how often do we do that with God, who is the owner of all things, and we feel like we have a right and so we may make a promise because what we're really doing is not wanting to fulfill our end. We just believe that God owes something to us. He owes nothing to us. And he's given us everything. How amazing is that? But then he shows us a fourth way that we are to approach God. He says, choose your words wisely. The author of Ecclesiastes is like a broken record at times. You know, it just kind of comes back and does the same lap again. You know, it just kind of replays the same thing. And, and even in our section here, it's, it's as if this last command is a catch-all can of the three commands before. And yet he pushes it one phase further. 
And this time, notice what he says. He says, verse 6, Let your mouth not lead you into sin, and do not say to the messenger, that was a mistake. Now, there's all sorts of ways that we can let our mouths lead us into sin, right? We can say hurtful things. Ephesians 4 tells us that we can have corrupting words that are hurtful to one another. We can mock people. We can even mock God. And yet, there seems to be something more specific that the author is getting at. Because notice again what he said. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Commentators believe that what people would do is they would go to the temple and they would tell God, I'm going to give you all of this money, and then their life would get better. And the temple messenger would be like, okay, it's time for you to fulfill what you promised. And they'd be like, oh, didn't mean, didn't mean it, just a mistake. Life's going well, so I don't need to fulfill what I promised to God. Now, now, I don't want any of us to raise our hands, but how many of us have thought, if I just had more money, if I just had more time, if I just had more energy, if I just had more ability, then I would give this to God. And yet, the moment more time, more energy, more ability, the moment all of those come into your life, You've already figured out ways to spend it on everything but God. It's our way of saying, oh, that was a mistake. Why did I do that? And we need to take notice because look at the warning that the author gives us. Look at verse 6. He gives us a warning. He said, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. In our world, if, if you're not real familiar, we are a Baptist church, which means that we believe in people coming to faith and then getting baptized as a profession of that faith. And we are in a long line of the Reformed tradition uh, of many great Reformers who rediscovered the gospel and when those two worlds collide, often what comes together is, is this belief that's even in our own statement of faith. That once you're saved, once you believe in Jesus Christ, you will persevere all the way until the end and have eternal salvation with Jesus Christ. But the problem so often is that we misunderstand what that means. Because if you read Hebrews 6... Hebrews 6 tells us that there is a way in which we can know right things about God. We can hear truth about God. We can do the things of God. And yet, we will prove that we were never actually followers of God to begin with. That's a warning in our Bible. There's a way in which we can be so deceived that we do all the things that God wants and we just slap the label of God on it and yet we have no actual love for God. And so yes, if we are truly saved, we will continue until the end. But the question is, is do we actually love God and desire to give Him honor and to give Him glory 
Because if not, if the, whole, uh, if the whole process is about what we can get out of it, the author in verse 6 says, uh, God's going to be angry, and he has the ability to destroy the work of your hands. He has the ability to oppose you. Church, this should be a moment of looking at our hearts and saying, what's driving me? What's the motivation? Is it the honor of God? Or is it my own honor? Because the author actually goes there. Look at verse 7. This is where he pushes it further. He says, when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Because notice all of these commands. Notice where the arrows are pointing. It's either we're trying to prove ourselves to other people that we're worthy. Or maybe we feel like we're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves so that we would feel good about ourselves. Or we're trying to prove ourselves to God that maybe we have earned his love. But when you fear God, all of that is out the window. When you see God rightly and you desire to honor God, the focus is not on proving myself, but realizing I can't prove. It's up to him to prove. And that's kind of where we're left, because if we look at these things, these are wonderful things, but let's be honest. In our own power, we can't do any of this, can we? There is absolutely no way in our own power we are going to obey this passage. So we need help. And fortunately, we have help. And that's what we see at the end. And that is that Christ clears the channel for us to approach God. For us to come to God, Christ clears everything out so that we can actually approach God. Not to prove, but because of what he has already done for us. I don't want us to miss this. Look at verse 2. Because this is massively important. Because look at, look at verse 2. He says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Church, there is a gap between us and God. There was no intention for that gap to be as severe. When God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2, he created the world and he put man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 3, we see God walking in the Garden of Eden. So there must have been some sort of relationship and bond between humanity and God. But the moment humans sinned is the moment they were banished from the garden and they were banished from the presence of God. And it's not until Exodus 25. You know, if you read the Bible, you get to that point where it starts for the 15 chapters on how to build the tabernacle. Those are the chapters you just kind of skip over because eh, I don't really care about a cubit and what the dimensions of the, this building are. And yet, in that moment, God is doing a massive thing because it's the first time that God is saying, since Genesis 1 and 2, I am going to dwell in the midst of people. And yet, even God's dwelling in the midst of people 
had barriers to it, didn't it? Because they were supposed to create this tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, they had a holy place, but they had a holy of holy places. This place where God's spirit was to dwell. And yet, it was a place that only one man, one time a year, after much purification, could enter in to the presence of God. And so there's still this barrier to the presence of God, this, this distinguishment and gap. And then we see the destruction of the temple and the Spirit of God never returning. And we wonder, how in the world do we bridge this gap? How can we rightly worship God? And it's not until we get to John chapter 1, as I mentioned earlier, where John most beautifully writes in verse 1, the, in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in 13 verses later, in verse 14, he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God came to us to bridge that gap, and he dwelt among us. But he didn't just dwell among us. Because in John 14 and John 16, Jesus offers us amazing hope. He says, I'm not just dwelling among you. In fact, I must leave you. And you, th- you might be like the disciples and think, oh no, this is terrible. Jesus Christ is going to leave us. And he says, no, 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 I have to leave you. Because when I leave you, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be in you. To the point that as Jesus goes to the cross, the gap that separates us from God, all of our sin... All of the wrong ways of worship that you've ever had gets put on Christ. And the wrath of God gets poured out on Christ. And as Christ breathes his last, he declares to us and to the the Lord, it is finished. The sacrifice of God is made. Christ isn't just the presence of God. He actually becomes the priest of God that offers the sacrifice of God. So that when Christ then raises from the dead and returns to heaven, his spirit now comes down. And for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and transforms us. Changes us. To the point that Galatians 5 tells us that we no longer Walk by the flesh. You know, all the fleshly ways. How do I earn God's favor? But rather, we walk by the Spirit and produce fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit of God is in us and working through us. Church, the way that we can approach God is kind of what we saw in John chapter 4 a few weeks ago. Jesus exposes this woman's adultery, exposes this woman's sin, and she quickly diverts the attention and she says, whoa, 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 time out. My people say we're supposed to worship God on this mountain. Your people say we should worship God on that mountain. What should we do? And Jesus says, hey, there's coming a day when we will no longer worship on a mountain, but we will worship God in spirit and truth. And she says, okay, I I, I know that the Messiah is coming and he's going to reveal all things. You remember what Jesus says? I am he who speak to you. I am the Messiah. You and I come to worship through Christ, 
through his spirit in us. Not because you have done something well, but because Christ did the perfect thing for you. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can do a million wonderful things. You can do them better than any of us in this room combined. And yet because you're born with a sinful nature, you will never bridge that gap. God is still in heaven and you are still on earth and you are still in your sins. It's not until you lay down your effort and come to Christ and receive his perfect effort on your behalf that you can rightly worship him. And for those of us who are Christians, think about the immense amount of freedom that this gives us. God is not looking down at our efforts saying, man, if you just did a little bit more, He's looking at the cross of Christ saying, man, it is finished. I love you. And it's because of that that we fear God. It's because of that that we pursue holiness. Because we see that we serve a holy God who loves us and cares for us and has received us in. So church, how do you come to worship God? Do you come thinking that if I just bring my checklist, if I just bring my ability, if I just bring my money, if I just bring my right words, God will accept me? Or do you come humbly knowing the holy God accepts you in Christ Jesus and our response is just love for him? Let's pray. Father, it is so easy for us to get caught up in the ways of the world, to get caught up in the world's mechanisms of pursuing you. And we do all the right things, and yet we don't do it with a love for you. And so, Lord, I I confess that that's been me. At times, it's so much more of a focus to get the preaching right or, or to get the greeting right or to, to get the worship right or to get giving right or to get parenting right or, or to get uh, uh, being married right or to get business right more than it is to love and honor you. Father, it's so easy for us to pursue good things rather than to pursue the one great thing, which is you. And so help us. We are needy. We come. We ask that you would transform us. That our worship would come from a heart of honoring and fearing you, not fearing man. We pray and we thank you that you have given us grace and mercy through the cross of Christ, we pray in your son's name, amen.